Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It would be over by Christmas. That was what everyone said when Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his beloved wife Sophie were assassinated in 1914. Their marriage wasn't supposed to happen. As the sitting emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Joseph disapproved of his nephew and heir's choice. But true love won out, and the happy couple were married for 14 years. Austria-Hungary, like most European nations throughout the 19th century, had a taste for empire. They occupied large swaths of Europe and believed that they had firm rights over territories and people they ruled, even though their subjects disagreed. Revolutionary groups sprang up all across the empire in resistance to the rulers. It was the assassination that never should have happened. No amount of planning in the world could have helped the revolutionary group, the young Bosnians, more than the luck they had that day. After multiple blunders on both sides, it was Gavrilo Princip, standing on the wrong street corner at the right time, who managed to get the job done, firing two shots at point-blank range. This was the modern-day shot heard round the world. The assassination of the heir of the Austro-Hungarian Empire by a Serbian kicked off a chain of reactions and alliances that would destroy the world as they knew it. Admittedly, no one knew that at the time. After all, almost all of European monarchs were cousins through Queen Victoria. Back then, war was treated as something romantic, adventurous, and even grand. It was solemn, for sure, but also something exciting that roused national pride. When the war was officially declared in July of 1914, most people thought that it would be over by Christmas, but it was soon abundantly clear just how wrong they'd been. In both weaponry and tactics, this war was nothing like any they had ever seen before. It wasn't confined to the battlefield, either. It consumed farms, towns, and even cities— And along the way, it destroyed an entire generation of young men and exhausted resources and national morale. Many of the young men who joined up were looking for adventure, glory, and maybe a chance to move up in the world. What they got instead was speedy training that didn't equip them for what was to come. They were stuffed into muddy, wet trenches, choked and blinded with chlorine and mustard gas, plagued by trench foot and shell shock. By Christmas of 1914, all those boys really wanted was to go home but they were stuck there in the freezing mud. Pope Benedict XV, who took office not long after the war began, put out a call for a truce that Christmas. Maybe he hoped a break from the fighting would bring leaders to their senses. If so, he was sadly disappointed when it was officially rejected from both sides. But then, a funny thing happened. No one really knows how it started, or where. But at around 8.30 p.m., an officer from the Royal Irish Rifles sent a report to HQ saying, Germans have illuminated their trenches, are singing songs, and wishing us a happy Christmas. Compliments are being exchanged, but I'm nevertheless taking all military precautions. And then there was Bruce Bairn's father. He was a British machine gunner of the 1st Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. He was sick to death of all the mud, the sleeplessness, and the stale biscuits. And on Christmas Eve of 1914, as he later recorded in his memoir, at about 10 p.m., he heard a commotion from the German trench. They were singing. 
Bairn's father wrote that when they started singing back, there was confused shouting from the other trench. Then, in an accented English voice, one of the Germans asked the British to send a man over. Both sides cautiously agreed to meet halfway in no man's land and climbed out of the trenches, taking a few careful steps into the contested territory. And there they met, with smiles and handshakes. They traded songs, alcohol, and tobacco, and had a party under the stars together. Once the soldiers on both sides had met, they realized that not one of them really hated the other. Not yet, anyway. And it turned out that their little slice of the front line wasn't alone. Up and down the line, carol singing had broken out. The Germans sang Silent Night and were answered by British troops' rendition of The First Noel. Stories of the Christmas truce don't appear in any official documents, though, because it was never sanctioned. Instead, the soldiers who were doing the fighting and dying, who had lost their idealism, decided to take a chance and see what might happen. They talked about home, their families, even soccer. And yes, of course, the good didn't last. Hostilities resumed just a few days later, and the worst was yet to come. But to me, the Christmas truce is a beautiful reminder of humanity's ultimate desire for peace. No matter how short-lived, it might have been. Every year, as the holiday season approaches, Columbia University holds their Yule Log festivities. The party includes food, drinks, a bonfire, and a reading of one of the most famous poems in American history. It's called A Visit from St. Nicholas, but you'll probably recognize it by its opening lines. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." The reading is an homage to the season and to an old Columbia University professor, Clement C. Moore. Moore wrote a visit from St. Nicholas in 1822 as a Christmas gift to his young children. Or at least, that's the story. The authorship of this American classic is actually the subject of a nearly 200-year-old debate. You see, the poem first appeared in print in 1823. It was published anonymously in a New York newspaper called the Troy Sentinel. People loved the whimsical verse so much that other newspapers began circulating it too. As the poem took the country by storm, Clement Seymour remained quiet. It wasn't until 1837, a full 14 years later, that the piece was formally attributed to him. It was featured in an anthology called The New York Book of Poetry and published under the professor's name. However, even back then, it seemed people weren't sure who penned those now-famous lines. In 1843, a Washington, D.C. newspaper attributed the poem to someone named Joseph Wood. Word got out about this to Moore, and in 1844, he wrote a letter to the editors correcting their mistake. He said he had written the poem, and I quote, "...not for publication, but to amuse my children." Whatever his original intention was, Clement Seymour now wanted credit for his work. Except sometime in the late 1840s, a woman claimed that it wasn't his at all. She said her father, Henry Livingston, had penned the poem in 1808. However, by the time she was saying all of this, Livingston was dead. He never publicly claimed to have written the piece, and there was no proof to back up the idea that he had. Not until later, 150 years later to be exact. You see, in 1999, Henry Livingston's descendants were still arguing that he was the poem's true author. And they went to a surprising person for help proving it, too. Don Foster, a forensic writing analyst best known for his work on the Unabomber case. 
And for Don, the mystery ended up being far more intriguing than he ever anticipated. He wrote an entire book called Author Unknown, in which he argued that Clement C. Moore absolutely could not have written A Visit from St. Nicholas. According to Don, there were aspects of the writing that made Henry Livingston the more likely author. For example, Livingston often wrote poems in anapestic meter, which means two unstressed syllables followed by one stressed syllable. That's the same meter A Visit from St. Nicholas was written in, and it's also one that Clement C. Moore almost never wrote. There was also the matter of the reindeer. In the original version of the poem, Donner and Blitzen are named Dunder and Blixum, which are the Dutch words for thunder and lightning. Livingston spoke Dutch. Moore did not. And aside from all this text-based evidence, Don Foster also got a little personal. He claimed that based on his research, Clement C. Moore was a haughty, high-strung man who hated children. The idea that he would write such a jaunty holiday verse for his kids was simply out of the question. Now, since Don Foster published his book, others have come forward arguing against his evidence. Just because Moore rarely wrote in anapestic meter doesn't mean that he never did. Moore had friends who spoke Dutch, so he might have picked up some words. And the attacks on his character were, according to many historians, wholly unfounded. Wherever the truth lies, one thing is certain. Twas the night before Christmas is one of the most recognizable lines in American poetry. It played a big role in making Christmas what it is today. Before A Visit from St. Nicholas was published, Santa Claus as we know him didn't really exist. The legend of a jolly old man who sneaks into your house through the chimney carrying a bag full of presents originated with the poem. And still, we don't know for sure who the poem's author was. And that certainly makes for a very curious Christmas. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.